morning. Our reading for today's sermon is found in the book of Esther, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. That's Esther 7, verses 1 through 10. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance of the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who would, presume to do th- who would presume to do thus? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And then the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And as the word came to the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king said, behold indeed the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows, which had been prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. And now let's join together in our responsive reading from Psalm 54. O God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. For strangers. <laughs> I did that one good, didn't I? I'm sorry. <laughs> he will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them.
I trust you keep your Bibles open there to Esther 7. Uh, if I can interject another text. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. This passage is about a big fall, Haman's fall. And I pick up on the term fall because uh, his own wife, Haman's wife, at the end of chapter 6 said, if indeed uh, you're going this is ha Mordecai the Jew, you certainly will fall before him. And then we read, uh, as Dave brought us through the text, toward the end, there is Haman actually falling on the couch. Same word that's used in the narrative, kind of bracketing this whole story together and the irony that is there. But this fall is so great, there is, there is no redemption for Haman. And that causes us, in one sense, to rejoice that the enemy of God and of God's people will be vanquished, and yet it causes us also to grieve because here one created in the image of God is going to spend an eternity in doom. So Esther, chapter 7, on that, that positive note, We'll come to Esther chapter 7. We're going to look at this in, in five small movements through these verses. Just about two verses for each movement. First is the feast. It's the second banquet that Esther is now hosting within two days. She's not yet revealed her request uh, to uh, Ahasuerus. Uh, she's concerned about her people. Haman has devised a plan uh, to eradicate the world of the Jews, is to do away with them altogether. Now, there's, there's some history that goes back as to why there's a hatred uh, between Haman and Mordecai and the Jews, and we'll, we'll probably touch on that as we go forward. But this, this is not genocide or anti-Semitism necessarily in the sense that we might think of it in today's uh, terminology. Haman is, is uh, certainly that, but he's also of a, of a prideful stripe that it wouldn't really matter what people group it was. If they got in his way and didn't bow down to him, he would eradicate them all. So not just pure Semitism, but boastful pride altogether. Well, this, this feast is Esther's way of getting the ear of the king, and it's through this, I suppose, there's proof to the adage, the way to a king's heart is through his stomach. And as the New American Standard read it, it, it the, literally, it's, it's the whining. Uh, and when it's used in this way, it, it's describing a feast. But this seems to be, this is the after-dinner drinks portion of the feast. There, there is Xerxes, and now for the, the third time, Xerxes himself, or Ahasuerus, also known as, for the third time now, he, he asks Queen Esther, what is it, my dear, that you want? Up to half my kingdom. It'll all be yours. And she's, as of yet, not given an answer, but now will come the time for her to give an answer, but realize at this point now, we, we know Xerxes. He's a, he's a very boastful, prideful man himself. Um, he kind of is, is uh, abdicating much of his decision-making and responsibilities. He really can't seem to do anything apart from counselors around him. Something happens, what do you guys think? And, he, and he's so far always has gone along with it, including this uh, genocide of a people whom... At this point, he doesn't even know the name of the people group that is dis that supposedly dishonest, disloyal to him. He just takes Haman's word for it. 
But he now publicly three times has said, whatever you want, Esther, I'll answer. He's really locked in to answering Esther's question favorably. Right? She, she's done well, uh, I think in a, a noble way, to get him to publicly state he will support her. Well, verses 3 and 4 go on uh, with not just the feast, but now the favor will be asked. The king said, what honor or distinction? I'm sorry, that was the wrong chapter. That's chapter 6. Chapter 7, the queen Esther answered, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. So she finally brings it to her, her point of asking of the request. She's Remember her, her first meeting with the king, chapters before, about ten years earlier, it took an entire year to prepare for her physical appearance to come into the presence of the king. And this time, it took her three days of fasting before she would approach the king's throne, wondering if he would even allow her to approach, risking her life for approaching him without invitation. With this three days of fasting, and not only her, but the whole people group, fasting with her, seeking, we assume, God's favor, God's direction. And then Esther preparing and planning based on this has come to the place of asking her request. She's an intelligent woman as much as she is beautiful. And God has made her and placed her in this place. But God expects her to act in keeping with the way that he's made her and in keeping with the gifts that he has bestowed upon her. This, this is a cooperation between the divine sovereignty and human stewardship that Esther has and indeed that we each have. Now, we, we can't do it exactly as Esther. She's a Jew, she's a queen, and she is there specifically to save the nation under direction of God. But we each must recognize that in in Esther's finding favor, it wasn't just a a one-time, per-chance, or at-the-moment kind of thing. It's not that she just assumed she could come into the presence of the king and ask her request. Even though she, she did don her royalty, she put on the royal robes, true. She did remind him of her position, her place, of how he had chosen her and selected her. He... He chose her. She reminds him of those things. But she's had an entire life of this character. You know, we're, we're, we're told early in the story how she was obedient to her cousin, Mordecai, who had adopted her. And it's of a noble character. She honored and respected the one who was over her to care she, she, even in a, a very dire circumstance, ends up in the harem of the, of the king along with hundreds if not thousands of other young women. She finds favor 
in the presence of the chief eunuch. She then later finds favor within the, the sight of the entire harem. Can you imagine, you know, the competition that's going on in that place? And yet, even in that, she found favor with them all. She did find favor with the king as he let the scepter out for her to touch the tip and come forward into his presence. She found favor. But it wasn't just this one time, if I have found favor, there's a life, a behavior, a character that is behind it all. Do you have a life of favor, a life of grace? Are you using God's gifts, God's talents, the way He's made you, the places that He's placed you as a good steward of His grace? Now, look at Esther's speech. I mean, it's really quite elegant. We could spend, we could spend a lot of time just dicing through that, but she does it quite well. She uses the king's own words. She uses even the words of the edict. Destroy, annihilate. She repeats the official words of the king and of the prime minister. But she weaves them together without, without directly accusing the king of wrongdoing. Now, it, it's all implied in there because he'll remember at least part of the information, but he didn't realize there was an entire conspiracy behind the request of Haman. In fact, he doesn't even seem to remember who brought this idea to him at all. She maintains that it's really to the king's advantage. She doesn't talk about uh, her sense of urgency as much as she does the loss to the king. King, you're going to lose another queen. You lost one already and you've lived a life filled with regret. You don't want to go through all this again. This is implied in her statement, right? I'd like to retain my life and the life of my people because it would be a greater loss to you if this entire people group is gone and can't be your servants in the empire. Now, as it is, Esther really is in that place. Yes, she's the queen, but she's really there because she was forced to be there. She was taken from her family and put into this situation. She is there to serve the emperor. The citizens of the empire are there to serve the emperor. But if an entire people group is removed, a lot of servants gone from the empire. She, she's quite wise in the way she does this. It reminds us of the proverb, Proverbs 25 and verse 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Hmm. The New Testament is similar for those of us who are in Christ and how we're to navigate in strange societal situations, in political circumstances, and in life and a testimony. Colossians chapter 4. And verse 6 says, Let your speech always be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you'll know how to answer anybody. Gracious. A lot of the banter uh, in these days is not very gracious on any side. 
So she emphasizes the king's loss. And the work that we have will be unique to us. Esther's in a very special place. But your work will be unique to your making as God has created you to the place where he puts you. So we've seen the feast, the favor, and now the foe. Verses 5 and 6. Then King Ahasuerus said to the queen, Who is he? Where is he? Who's dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Ahasuerus is upset. And, and, and it's like, as you, if you could read it in the language of the Bible, it's like rapid fire. <laughs> Who? Where? What? Right? There's just a lot of emotion built up and it's a, immediate it comes out. And, and the queen's own, own response is, you know, the timing is just right. You know, they say with comedy, timing is everything, but, you know, in drama, it is too. And her timing is just right. Now, she sees her husband's there to protect her. And she can now respond, and it's, 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 a, it's a staccato kind of cadence that's here. Foe, enemy, wicked Haman. Hateful, hostile Haman. Kind of just... Poof. And Haman's already been identified as the enemy of the Jews, obviously, but now he's identified as the enemy of the king. And we wonder, why, why is Esther so worked up? And, and in reading this, you know, in the biblical language, so vehement, this vile, wicked monster of a man. Well, we, we do need to review just who Haman is. He isn't just anybody. He is a personification of evil. We learned early that Mordecai was in the line of uh, the tribe of Benjamin, a son of Kish, uh, a descendant of King Saul. And we learned then that Haman is an Agagite, a descendant of King Amalek. Two kings, Saul and Amalek, who, who really hated one another. I'm not Amalek, Agag. Hated one another. They were enemies. And part of it is because Amalek, Haman's forefather way back, as, as Israel was traipsing through the wilderness, Amalek would come behind the, the group and pick off the stragglers behind and the, the Old Testament tells us that Amalek did not fear the Lord. He did not fear the Lord, so he hated God's people and tried to get rid of them. And as a result, the Lord himself will judge Amalek and all of his descendants. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way he came out to Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind. And he did not fear God. And he says in Exodus 17, verse 14, the Lord said, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under the heavens. 
The Lord will have war on Amalek for generation to generation. God is opposed to Haman. God judges the wicked. God judges the ungodly. God pours out his wrath upon those who do not fear him, worship him. That's terrifying. It's harsh, if we're honest. And it ought to move us to compassion to tell people and warn them about the Lord and the coming judgment. Well, Haman is terrified at this revelation. The king is enraged to wrath. And rather than an immediate outburst, which seems to be a bit uncharacteristic of him, he goes for a walk. Have you ever had to do that? You ever just have to get up and, and, you, and maybe the door slams? Or, it's usually an accident. <laughs> you're just in a hurry. The king goes off to the garden and Haman knows he's in trouble. The fall comes in verses 7 to 8. So the king arose in his wrath and from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And even as the word left his mouth, they covered Haman's face. God, God had directed Esther to delay. At first, you know, she has this, this initial banquet and wonder, why, why did she not ask at the first banquet? Well, she, she knows her man. But God also had a plan which she did not know anything about. The delay, even one day till the second banquet, was the night that Ahasuerus couldn't sleep and is reminded of Mordecai the Jew who stopped an assassination plot against him. That delay God used, and now the second banquet comes. God directed her to this delay to remind the king that there was a Jew who was loyal patriot and saved him. If this Jew saved my life, then why should I get rid of all of the Jews? I shouldn't. They're probably as loyal as Mordecai. Well, Haman realizes all this is going on in the king's mind. He knows he's in trouble. If he, if he runs, what do you suppose? Then he really looks guilty. And he's dead. Trying to evade, you know, arrest. Uh, but he is so distraught that he falls down before the queen. Do you, remember, do you remember how filled with hatred Haman was because a Jewish man wouldn't bow before him? And now here he is bowing before a Jewish woman. His life is totally reversed. He's begging for his life. As we mentioned, this term fall was, in effect, prophesied by his own wife. 
You know, the, the, you can read Herodotus and some of those old historians, and they, they tell us that the protocol uh, in, in harem life is that as a man, you couldn't, even, you, couldn't even be, you couldn't be in the room alone with one of the king's harem. You should just left. Well, if he had, guess what, right? He looked guilty. So he's stuck either way, but he stays. But the, the protocol also said you can't even be, even if there are other men in the room, you can't be within seven paces of one of his wives. Well, he's way closer than seven paces. Like he's going to fall down on the same sofa. And you get, the, you get the divine irony that's here. He's violated the divine royal person, excuse me. He's, he's violated the royal person. This bride is the king's. This is the queen. You, you may as well have violated the king himself. And at that moment of falling, you, you get the narrative that's here. The king walks in and sees it. And I don't know what would have been going on exactly in uh, Xerxes' mind, but he's, he's probably not as dumb as the whole story makes him out to be. And by now, he's wising up because he has a good woman by his side. And She's pointed him in the way of truth. And he's out there mulling things around. Like, Haman, my prime minister, my second in command, the one I entrusted with everything, set me up with this conspiracy. He, he didn't tell me what people group it was. He was deceptive. Now, let me put just a bracket footnote here. We've got elections coming up. Real soon, right? Tuesday? You know, the people part is really significant and important. The right candidates. But those proposals, you read them. Boy, are they sneaky. Boy, are they sneaky. Like, I even know what the proposals are and what they mean. And I read them in the ballot like, what? What does that mean? Oh, unpack it. I can't tell you what to do. I can tell you what I'm going to do um, because Proposal 3 is just unbiblical. All right? My interpretation, based on Scripture, human beings are created in the image of God. But the way this is worded is just deceptive. And Proposal number 2, well, it sets us up for the other proposals like number 3 to just come. Because it simply it says you don't have to bring any identification when you vote. You can just sign that you're the person. That's it. Well, I'm all for wanting and getting more people voting. But that sounds like a Haman kind of approach, if I dare say. Deceptive. Well, that's a little applicational. So... <laughs> Ahasuerus walks in and he realizes, I'm stuck. It, 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 it's the law of the Peds and Mer Medes and Persians. Peds and Persians. The, 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 the Medes and Persians. I can't, I can't change it. Even I cannot change this law. What do I do? My queen is going to be gone. 
And he, he, can't, he can't stick Haman with this. But he walks in, and God, God knows what he's doing. And Haman is falling on the couch of the queen. He, he indeed has committed as bad of a treasonous act as the conspiracy he led the king to believe. He's defiled the royal personage. And that's a treasonous act. Again, Herodotus and some of those old ancient historians say, you violate the king's queen, it's an act of treason. And Xerxes, not the most brilliant man, but bright enough, he sees an opportunity. I can get him on that charge. And no sooner do the words come out of his mouth. You know, does this not remind you a little bit of, of Potiphar? Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Yeah. These are classic narratives. Well, Haman should be scared. Proverbs 14, verse 35. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor. Esther. But his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. Haman. Well, there comes the fate. Verses 9 and 10. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance uh, on, of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows or, or the, the stake that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet or so. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And this is probably, this is probably the key phrase of the whole chapter. The wrath of the king abated. Whew. The wrath of the king abated. So after escorting Mordecai through the city the, the day before and covered his head in humiliation, chapter 6, verse 12, now his head is covered in shame, uh, getting ready for execution. Had Haman covered his head with humility and repentance, I suspect his life would be saved. You read the narratives over. There is, there is no person, no person that even God has come to bring judge and given a warning of, of judgment who repents and turns that he turns away. Those whom he's warned of his coming judgment and wrath, but repent, he receives and accepts. Think of Rahab there at the Battle of Jericho. She alone, with her family, repented. She'd heard and was fearing the Lord, and God preserved her. Same with any person. Any person. Well, Arbona speaks and um, the, there's different versions of the story, and uh, we, we have probably the inspired one. I shouldn't say probably. Boy, that was a bad... Are, are we, I'm sure I'm IFCA, yes. We have the inspired, God-given version. But there's some other Jewish versions that are written that give other background and history and interpretation. 
And one of them clearly identifies that the king was thinking in his mind in connecting Mordecai with the assassination plot and Haman wanting to get rid of the Jews, Mordecai, that Haman must have been behind the assassination plot. Wow. And you thought Hollywood could do a good job. Well, how do, we, how do we apply this? I mean, we've made a little bit of, of application along the way. One, one is, I suspect we're a little more like Haman than we're, we're comfortable to admit. There, there are times during the week when our loyalties, the, the search for glory is more for ourselves than it is for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And through this, Haman has constantly been about himself. Well, the warning comes to us, your sin will find you out. Eventually, your sin will find you out. Numbers 32.23 says so. It says, be sure your sin will find you out. Proverbs 22 and verse 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Galatians chapter 6. You thought, well, that's Old Testament stuff, Todd. Yeah? Here's the new. Galatians 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Retribution. A doctrine of retribution. Haman's destiny, one commenter says, overtakes him like a thief in the night. Wow, that was good. Wish I could have said that. But the king's wrath is abated. Now, we ought to hang on because, okay, bad guy's gone, but the plot, the conspiracy is still in effect. That didn't go away. Haman's gone, but we're only three months in. There's nine months before the actual genocide date comes. What's going to happen? Well, I guess we'll have to leave that as a cliffhanger. But God is not like Xerxes. Yes, God is angry with sin. He has a just wrath. He has a holy indignation. He does condemn the rebel and make things right. But he has sent someone to hang on the tree for you. Yeah, you're guilty. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is life everlasting through Jesus Christ our Lord. The hanging on the tree has been prophesied again Deuteronomy 21-23. A hanged man is cursed by God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on the tree. 
while there's no help for Haman, and he would not plead for mercy. So, now there is hope for you. You can fall at the feet of Jesus and plead for mercy, and indeed He will grant you grace, mercy, favor. And your sins are forgiven. Even, even the sin of a Haman, God paid for in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. Heinous sins, grievous sins, great conspiracy against God and against His people. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, killing Christians. And God broke into his life, opened his blind eyes, by making him blind to self and revealing Christ and made him an apostle to the nations. Now, we move from the greater to the lesser. God forgives sin. He forgives your sin. It's paid for in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you haven't done, wherever you should have been. The shame can be removed. The guilt is taken away by Jesus who became the curse for you. This is what we remember when we come to the table. His body and His blood, that sacrifice hung on the cross as a curse for our own. So, Father, indeed, may this be the application this morning we would come to Jesus, run to Him, hold on to Him, and plead for Your mercy because of all that He has done for His people. We thank You, Lord, that You indeed are, you are holy. You are just. But You are merciful and gracious and You will show favor to those who will bow before You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I'll ask uh, everyone to get in place for the communion. Uh, and as we come, I'll just give some words of, of explanation. As we approach the table, this is, this is the Lord's table. Uh, we call it the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. We call it the Eucharist. That's a word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's about giving thanks. And uh, we call it communion because here we are given a picture of the union that we have with Jesus Christ. As we partake of the body and the blood, it shows that we're part of His body. Now these are symbols representing those truths. But Lord invites all and only those who belong to Him. If you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome to partake of his table. None of us comes perfect. We come forgiven and we come needing more forgiveness. And that's grace. How, how do we say thank you? Not by paying him back, but by asking for more. More of his grace. Now, as uh, the elements are distributed, hold on to your portion of the bread, hold on to your portion of the cup until we've all been served, and then we'll eat and we'll drink together. 
On the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins, so that every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he returns. So again, Father, we come to you. We thank you for this uh, great sacrifice of Jesus that is a once-for-all time done and completed. But here is a, a meal, a token to remind us of, of the true meal that is yet to come when Jesus comes back for his bride, for his people. Lord, until then, would you continue to wash us anew in the blood of the Lamb, to know the cleansing fountain, the forgiveness of sin, to know the fullness of your Spirit, to walk in a fruitful life in service to our neighbors, in service of you, our King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for offering yourself to us afresh, of renewing your relationship with us here now. And we come in Jesus' name. Amen.